So we just want you to be prepared for that. And if at any time you'd rather sit as we continue to sing, you are more than welcome to do so.
Father, we have come today to exalt you, to declare that you are the only great God, to thank you for all that you have done and promised to do for us. And we pray that in this hour of worship, it will be so evident to us that you are here, that you are speaking into our lives 
and that you are excited with us about worshiping together. Be glorified in all that we do, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship. It's great to see you as uh, we gather for worship today, and uh, especially want to welcome those of you who are here with uh, pre-field orientation for the next few weeks. We're excited to have you here in worship today and pray that uh, this time together that you have uh, in learning and uh, fellowship and preparation for ministry cross-culturally will be very positive and and a great time for you here. Uh, A few things I want to uh, announce, uh, things happening in the life of our church this morning, uh, during the Sunday school hour following the service, uh, the Kaleidoscope class is hosting Julian Cook. Julian's a recent graduate from the college who will be sharing his faith journey, and uh, they wanted me to make sure that you were aware of that. If you don't have a Sunday school class to attend, uh, not a part of one, we'd lo- they'd love to have you be a part of that gathering. Tonight, we're going to be back at 6 o'clock and hear from the Haiti work team. They went out a couple of months ago and did some, uh, spent some time in Haiti, and they're going to be sharing about their experiences and also Megan Sotomayor. We'll be sharing about the Houghton Volunteer Fire Department. We appreciate so much the people who volunteer and help us out in so many ways, and uh, we want to uh, thank them and uh, hear a little bit about what's happening in that ministry as well. Next Sunday morning, Summer Sabbath begins, so please note that. We gather for one worship service at 10 o'clock, and that will continue uh, through into the first part of August, so just note that on your schedule. Um, if you come for the 8.30 service, you'll be kind of early. Uh, so come 10 o'clock next Sunday for worship. Also on the 21st, we're going to be uh, offering baptism for those who might be interested. If you are interested, uh, drop me a note this week, give me a call, and uh, we will be preparing a class in preparation for that. There are also a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. I want to thank you for your prayers for me. I'm feeling much better, and I appreciate uh, all of those prayers. I certainly felt that as I was going through a difficult time last weekend, and uh, thank you so much. And we appreciate the prayers for those connected to us and the issues that people are dealing with, as well as things around the world, as uh, we pray for God's grace and blessing on this world that he created and loves and uh, to whom he sent Christ. We're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church that meets on the first floor of the Christian Education Building. We want to be close. Close to your side, so heaven is real, death is a lie. What do you voice angels above singing as one? Hallelujah, holy, holy God Almighty. Worthy. 
Sometimes the, the way in which we pray, the physical characteristic in which we pray, standing, sitting, kneeling, uh, can reflect what's in our heart. This morning as we prepare to pray together, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you come and, and kneel to offer your prayers, I invite you to join me. Father, we come today to declare that you are good, that you are merciful, 
that you are love and truth, that you are everything. We come today to worship you. And we come today to pour out our hearts, the pain, fear, and challenges in our own lives. As we remember who you are and remember what you call us to be and what you call us to do. We take these moments of silence to pray for ourselves. Asking you to heal us, to change us, to release us, to direct us, to help us. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but for each other. We know there are many people around us who are hurting, who are confused about where life has led them, who are anxious about finances, and some who are feeling angry or sad about life that seems too hard, too painful too confusing, too uncertain, too much. In this moment of silence, we pray for one another. Father, we also pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Some live with a constant threat of persecution, intimidation, threats, imprisonment, death. Simply because they choose to follow you. Hear our prayers for our brothers and sisters. As we ask that you would give them strength. And fill them with hope in all of the circumstances in which they find themselves. Father, we also pray for people around the world suffering from the effects of recent disasters. It's easy for us to forget once these incidents are not in the forefront of the news. Help us to remember and hear our prayers 
that those who have suffered most will know your grace and the presence of your people and your mercy upon them. Father, teach us to live humbly and gratefully, admiring all that you have made and sensitive to all that you give. Help us to follow simply and honestly in the footsteps of our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and the one who provides us with an amazing model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The scripture reading for today is Psalm 87. Of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, too, and Tyre, along with Cush. And will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, all of my fountains are in you. seven years from the age of one to eight, I lived in the little town of Mitchell, Indiana. And um, if you drive into that town, even today, there is a sign virtually in every road that leads into it that says something to the effect of hometown of astronaut Gus Grissom. And we, in fact, we lived on Grissom Street. And we lived there. He was one of the three astronauts that was killed in the, in the fire of 1967. And I remember how that city, that little town of 5,000 people, mourned the death of their favorite son. I don't know where all of you were born, where all of you that you have lived. But I suspect that particularly if you've lived in small towns, something on the outskirts of the town says there's some kind of sign, some claim to fame that the town made has made. It might be about a person, 
It might be about something that they produce. It might be something that they consider themselves famous for. I did a little research about this and, and discovered that there are some places, that, that just some of the things that towns make claims about. You know, some of them you would expect. Dalton, Georgia is the carpet capital of the world. Thomasville, North Carolina is the furniture capital of the world. If you've ever been down there, you know there's furniture places everywhere. And Las Vegas, Nevada considers itself the entertainment capital of the world. Some of these places you might not know. Uh, For instance, uh, Holt, California is the carrot capital of the world. And uh, uh, Cairo, Georgia is the okra capital of the world. Some of the places I found, I'm thinking, wow, I'm not sure I would choose that as my claim to fame. Uh, Beaver, Oklahoma is the cow chip capital of the world. I think I'd want to avoid that parade if it were me. I don't know. Uh, And... and, uh, there's a, a Gilroy, California is the garlic capital of the world. That might be, I mean, if you love garlic, that'd be the, that'd be the festival you'd want to attend. But, you know, you, you might want to make sure you know that before you move, drive into town. And uh, Dodge City, Kansas is considered the wickedest little city in America. Now, I'm sure none of us would have any inclinations of wanting to travel there. But I'm thinking, why would you consider yourself that? And, you know, there, there are these, these communities that... That everyone wants to make a claim to fame. And some of them are pretty amazing. Uh, the uh, Florence, South Carolina says, claims itself a city of character. I don't even, I'm not quite sure why they make that claim, but I'm guessing they have no crime or something there that, that says we, we're a city of character. San Diego, California considers itself America's finest city. And then there is Paw Paw, West Virginia. That says it is almost heaven. I don't know, maybe that's where John Denver got the words of that song that he sang. But despite all those great claims, there is nothing that comes close to the claim that the psalmist makes about Jerusalem as the 87th psalm unfolds. He says at the very beginning that Jerusalem is God's favorite city. God loves Jerusalem more than he loves any other place. As the psalm begins, he said, he set his foundations on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob, much less all the other cities of the world. Now, that really shouldn't surprise us because if we read the Old Testament, we have this sense that the Old Testament is about the story of Israel and their relationship with God. And so it it really shouldn't surprise us that that the Israelites would say our capital city, the center of our existence, is God's favorite place. That's what we would expect. And you drive into ancient Jerusalem, you wouldn't at all be surprised to see a sign out front that says, Jerusalem, God's favorite city. He established it. He built it. He dwells there. And the fact that he says he loves it more than any other place simply means that God invests himself there. It is symbolic of everything that it means for God to have chosen Israel as his people. The surprising part of this psalm comes in verse 4. Because here we find God saying, not just is this favorite, is Israel, Jerusalem God's favorite city. But he talks about the inhabitants of this city. And he says in verse 4, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. 
Philistia too and Tyre along with Cush. And they will say, this one was born in Zion. Now, when you read that, I think to myself, that is quite phenomenal for God to make that statement. Because you're dealing with people who are are not just neighbors of Israel that God might not have chosen. These are the enemies of Israel. Egypt enslaved them for 400 years and, and periodically came and attacked them. Philistia, I mean... Famous story of David and Goliath. And the the Israelites are continually through their history fighting with the Philistines. And Babylon is the city, the place that eventually comes and destroys Israel and destroys Jerusalem and takes many of the people back captive. And yet the psalmist says, these people are going to be a part of God's holy city too. It is shocking sometimes the plans that God has for the world. We get into our minds that God's plans for the world and God's designs upon the peoples of the world are limited to the people that we like, limited to the people who are like us. They are limited to the people who think the way we think and understand God the way we understand him in exactly the same way. And God's plans are so much bigger. I mean, when this is written, who would have dreamed that Egypt and Philistia and Babylon, that any of the inhabitants of these cities would ever have a a reason to, to want to live in God's community, much less that God would invite them to live in his town, to invite them to live in his holy city. They would see that as desecrating his city. And sometimes when we think about some of the peoples of the world, some of the nations of the world, we, ha- we, we, we end up with the same mindset. God could never save those people. Those people are, are a lost cause. Those nations, they have nothing with God. It's all about the way we think and the way we feel and what we think is appropriate. And we have a tendency to think exclusively When we read the scriptures, God is continually thinking inclusively. Continually thinking bigger than any of us can imagine. God's plan from the beginning is to include all the peoples of the world. You go back to Genesis chapter 12 and God calls out Abraham and he says, I want you, I'm going to build my, my nation through you. And the reason you will be a great nation is so that you will, you will be my witness to all the nations of the rest of the world. It's not just, I want you to be a great nation so that I can exclude everyone else. It's I want you to be a great nation so that I can include everyone else. Think about the what nations of the world, what people groups that you find it difficult to believe that God would say, I want to welcome you. Those are the very people God is wanting to reach and include. There is, there's not a, a, a people group, there's not a person in the world that God doesn't want in his kingdom. Now, this is not universalism. This is not, a, this is not, the psalmist is not saying everyone is, is going to be welcome. It doesn't matter what they think about God. It doesn't matter if they care about God. It doesn't matter if they reject God. Everybody's in. That's not what the psalmist is saying. Because he says here in verse 4 that 
that I will record them among those who acknowledge me. It means to know me. It's to, it's to experience God. It's to want God. These are people who have said, I want relationship with God. I want to know God. I mean, I understand everything there is to understand about God. But they want to know God. They want to receive what God is giving. These are the peoples of the earth that God is drawing in. The thing that I find is that it's not, the problem usually for us is not we are too inclusive. It's that we are too exclusive. We put boxes around the way in which God can work. We put boxes around the ways in which God, people can come to God. We limit God. That is our struggle. And God is continually wanting to burst our boxes. He is continually wanting to work in ways that are beyond what we tend to conceive in our small way of thinking. Just think for a moment about the different ways in which people come to God. C.S. Lewis says that, that he was dragged kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert in the world to God. And look what God did with this most reluctant convert. John Wesley grew up in, in the home of an, of an Anglican priest, and he knew all about God. He went to, came to America as a missionary, and, and he did all the right things, but he lived a life distant from God until that night on May 24, 1738, when he sat in church and was listening to someone read from the preface of Martin Luther's commentary, the book of Romans, and he said his heart was strangely warmed, and everything kind of broke loose. And he became an amazing vessel for life throughout England and the world. I read about a man who lived down on an island in, in Florida, Sanibel Island, who, who was retired from uh, McGrath Hill Publishing. McGraw Hill Publishing. And, and he, um, he was a good man. Served on the vestry of his church. He was a leader in the city council. Everyone loved him. One weekend, he went off on a, on a spiritual retreat with some people from, from the area. And, and during that retreat, he met Jesus. And, and he became a different person. And when he came back, his neighbor said, what happened to you? He said, I fell in love with Jesus. And they said, you know, he was a good man before. And now he's a new man. And I think about my own journey. You know, I, I was raised in a Christian home. In fact, I was thinking about this this week. Growing up, the only, I had two uh, great uncles. They were the only two people that I can think of in my growing up years that were not Christians. Of all the family members that I knew. And, and before they, in their later years, they became Christians. Eight or nine ministers in my family if you could be born a Christian, I would have been born a Christian. I mean, you know, I, I've said this to you before. When we have family gatherings, the, the, we never got into fights about things that other families do. Our fights were only about who was going to pray over the meal. You know, we, we, everything about my existence was Christ and the church. And I, and I always knew the struggle I had was trying to form my faith journey into the box that everyone else said I needed to get into. 
that I needed to have some kind of dramatic experience, that I needed to have some kind of, of dramatic moment in my life. And so I'd come to the altar and pray and pray and do this over and over and over again. And, and finally, I began to realize that that wasn't my journey. I, I've always wanted to be a follower of Jesus. I didn't need a dramatic moment. I just needed a day-to-day surrender of my life to Christ that has continued on and on and on since I was a child. My struggle was trying to fit into the box that everyone else said I needed to fit into. And it created anxiety and fear and apprehension for me. And it was only when I let that go that I found joy and peace. God doesn't work in boxes. We keep trying to put God into boxes and he keeps breaking the walls of our boxes and we make more and he keeps breaking them and we make more and he keeps breaking them. And and this psalm reminds us that that God's purpose and plan for his people is not just, I'm choosing Israel and excluding everyone else. I am choosing Israel to be a catalyst for everyone else. God is wanting to break the boxes that we create for other people and to set us free. And it's really, it is no surprise that God loves Israel more than any other place. It's a big surprise that he is welcoming and including those, these groups of people that have been Israel's enemies through the years. It's a bigger surprise that he says, and when I include them, they are going to be considered as though they were native-born citizens of my holy city, not second-class citizens. You, you look at verse 4 and 5 and 6, and he says, they, the, of these people, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. It's as though you drive up to the city, and not only is there a sign that says Jerusalem, God's favorite city, but it also says, home of Philistines, birthplace of the, of the Egyptians, birthplace of the Babylonians. These are not, they they don't come as second class citizens of God's kingdom. And sometimes we treat people that way. We treat people as, well, you know, we want them in, but we don't really want them to have any authority. We don't want them to have any power. We don't want them to to be able to make any decisions because, you know, they they didn't come through the same route. They don't know as much as us. They they haven't, they haven't, they're never going to be what we can be. And it's really just our arrogance that creates that mindset. You think about how you view Christians in other parts of the world. I guarantee you there are groups of Christians in places of the world that without even thinking about it, subconsciously, you would say, For them to be in a position of power over you would make you uneasy. That ought to concern us. We forget that the cradle of Christianity is not in the West. 
It's in North Africa. It's in the Middle East. It's in where Asia Minor. We're Johnny come lately to this thing. And yet we think we're above other people. And, and it, part of it is because we, we know a lot and we have so many resources and so much has been given to us. And, and we've gone out into the world and we should go out into the world. And it's awesome to do that. And some of you here today are getting ready to do that. And it is an awesome thing. But ultimately, we are all on equal ground. And God wants to break, he wants to shatter those mindsets that we wrestle with that some way we're better than other people. And until they get into our box, until they look like us, until they think like us, until they act like us, until they come to Christ like us, they're second class citizens. And God is saying, you're limiting me. You don't think I can bring people to me in a whole variety of ways that you haven't even thought of yet? You think your way is the only way? Maybe your way is the best way? And we need to let go of that mindset, our bias, our prejudice, our arrogance. But to me, the biggest surprise of this whole psalm is the seventh verse. It says, and they make music, as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. I have this image in my mind of of this, this last verse and the picture that it's creating as the people come together in Jerusalem. And it's not just the Israelites singing this. It is the Israelites and the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and all the peoples of the earth are singing together about God. And what strikes me as the biggest surprise, because again, the natural mindset of, of, of Israel and of us is to think, we sing this song and maybe we'll let them join us. And we're hesitant to let them join us because this is our song. This is our God. We've been in the ground floor and they're just sort of joining us and I'm not so sure I want them to be on equal footing with us. And it seems to me that this is one of the reasons why people are drawn to God and to his kingdom Because of the spirit they see in God's people. It makes me think of the parable that Jesus tells of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. The master goes out early in the morning. There's a bunch of guys standing around the marketplace looking for work. Trying to make a little money. And he picks some of them. And they go begin working. He says, I'll pay you a denarii to work. And they say, great. So they go work. And throughout the day, he keeps getting more workers. Even up to the last hour, he gets these, all these workers. And then when the day is done, he lines them up and he pays the people who came last, he pays them first and he gives them a denarii. And the guys who've been working all day are thinking, this is awesome. He told us he was going to give us that. We're going to obviously get more. And he doesn't. He pays them all the same. And what do they do? They sulk and they whine and they complain that it's not fair. Why is it not fair? Because they should get more. We don't want them to get the same thing as us. We're better. We're further along. We worked more. We've done more. And the clear implication of Jesus is, I'm a generous person. 
I was generous with you. And I want to be generous with them. And most of us are in the place of being people who have been working in the field for a while. And sometimes it's hard to let others come in and and see them in the same light as we want God to see us. But it is that spirit of welcome and of celebration of us worshiping together and rejoicing in the goodness of God that creates an atmosphere of warmth and welcome and invitation that causes people who might normally be considered enemies to say, I want that. I want what they have. I want that spirit of joy and celebration and welcome because people don't come to God in a vacuum. Most people, if not all people, in some way or another come to God because of what they see in God's people. What they see in us. And the open invitation, the welcome, the joy, and however they come to God and to embrace them as native-born citizens of the kingdom. And the reason I think that the people in the parable whine and complain that it's not fair, and the reason we do that is because we have forgotten that what we have, everything about us, is only because of grace. Somehow we have come to believe that what we have and what we've gained and how far we've come has something to do with how good we are and how important we are and how much we've done and we forget that it's all about grace. It intrigues me, the title of this psalm. It simply says, Psalm 87 Of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are the temple musicians. They are the the people who write the songs. A lot of the songs that are sung in worship. And they lead the singing in the worship. They are the musicians in the temple. They are the Isaac Watts and the Charles Wesley. They're the the Bach and the Handel. They're the, the Bill Gaither. They are the Chris Tomlin. And the Keith and Kristen Getty. They are They are the worship leaders the hymn writers of ancient Israel. And they have an interesting story. They're called the sons of Korah. And this descendant, Korah, takes us all the way back to the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt and and God has begun to speak to Moses and and to give him the laws and the regulations and they're getting things set up. And, And Korah is actually a cousin to Moses and Aaron. And as Moses begins to distribute the responsibilities to to the Levites, Korah thinks he's not getting enough recognition. And he says, who is Moses to lead us? I'm just as good a leader as Moses is. I ought to be leading this group. And so he incites a rebellion of about 250 people, leaders of Israel, against Moses and Aaron. And he is ready to mutiny the whole thing and lead the people away from them. And Moses and Aaron cry out to God and God says, tomorrow I'll settle this. And the next day they all come back and God says to Moses and Aaron and to the people, separate yourselves from Korah and those who have followed him. And I'll tell you who I want to be in charge. 
And in a few moments, an earthquake hits and the ground opens up and Korah and all of those who follow him are swallowed up into the earth. Pretty definitive statement. It seems to me that if that were, the, that were my family's story, I think I'd want to find another name to describe myself. Surely there's somebody else in the lineage that you could grab hold of instead of sons of Korah. But it strikes me that there's a reason for that. It makes me wonder if they don't hang on to that name, that name that symbolizes rebellion against God, but it also symbolizes the grace of God. That despite what their ancestor did, God is gracious and good to them, even to the point of giving them a position of great leadership among the people of Israel. And I'm convinced that the reason the sons of Korah can write and sing songs of grace like this to all the peoples of the earth, it's because they recognize they are recipients of grace. And every time they write sons of Korah, they are reminded they are people of grace. They are people who have been given grace and their whole lives are about grace. And I am convinced that until we, until we grasp that and acknowledge that and embrace that truth in our lives, it's pretty difficult for us to be people who exude grace. And in fact, I think the only way we can exude grace is to continually remind ourselves that we are people who have received grace. That everything about our lives is God's grace. Any distance we've made in following Christ is because of his grace. Any progress we've made is because of his grace. And the fact that we are even here today to worship is because of God's grace. And it creates a spirit of humility in us. Humility toward God and humility toward others. There's an old Hebrew legend about Abraham sitting out by his tent one evening when he sees a, a, a weary stranger come near. The stranger is tired, he, he's an old man, and Abraham runs to him and, and helps him into the tent and he washes his feet and he sets before him food and drink. And then he watches in astonishment as, as this man just begins to eat without saying any kind of prayer or blessing. And Abraham says to him, don't you worship God? And he says, I only worship fire. I don't reverence any other God. And Abraham becomes incensed at this man's response. And he jumps up and he grabs him by the shoulders and he throws him out of the tent into the cold night air. It's only a minute or two later that Abraham hears God saying to him, where's the stranger that was here. He said, oh, I I threw him out because he doesn't worship you. And God says, really? He said, I've been patient with him for 80 years, even though he continues to dishonor me. You couldn't put up with him one night? It's all about remembering 
that we are people of grace. I want to to think about a people group. Maybe it's a person that you find it difficult to believe that God would truly want to welcome them into his beloved city. And to think, is your heart open or closed? Is there a sense of welcome or rejection? Do you feel love or apathy? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives that we so easily forget. Forgive us. Father, give us eyes to see the world the way you do. Help us to be people who are continually tearing apart our boxes and instead joining in all that you are doing and saying and wanting for this world. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something this week. You may need to write this down on a 3 by 5 card or something that will remind you. But every morning when you wake up, give thanks to God for His grace in your life. Give thanks to God that you have that his grace has made it possible for you to know about Christ and to know Christ and to grow in Christ. And every night when you go to bed, pray that same prayer of gratitude. And if you think of it other times during the day, maybe you should sit down at a meal, pray that prayer of gratitude about God's grace. And as you pray that prayer, ask God to make you a person who continues to sing more and more his song of grace.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.